If I have not met you, my name is Jim Cunningham, as it says in the bulletin, and I work with Young Life for the last 45 years. And uh, the last 12 of that, uh, my wife and I have been privileged to direct uh, Young Life's work in, we call North Asia, and uh, you know where that is. And um, I'm very pleased that uh, I could bring the message to you this morning. We, uh, I'm actually ordained in the PCA uh, a number of years ago, a lot of years ago when we lived in New Jersey. And uh, most recently, before we moved here to the Raleigh area, we uh, lived in a fairly rural part of Virginia, south, a little bit southwest, Harrisonburg, where James Madison University is. We lived in Bridgewater, which was a lovely community, about 5,000 people, uh, more cows than people, and uh, really enjoyed it. But we chased our grandchildren down here about four years ago to the Raleigh area and uh, where my daughter, I have two daughters here in the area, and my son-in-law is uh, actually the area director for Young Life in Western Wake County. We have enjoyed the Raleigh area. Um, I am not a farmer. I need to tell you, when we lived in Bridgewater, uh, everybody had gardens. We tried to do that. I am terrible. My wife's better at it than I am, but uh, I think the only thing I was ever successful in growing was zucchini. I think they can survive nuclear winter. Um, but other than that, we, we really were not terribly successful as gardeners or as farmers. And down here, um, was pleased to find out that all of the soil is like red clay, and uh, that doesn't put me at any kind of an advantage at all. So, you know, I've, I've always wondered how difficult is it really to get a good harvest. I mean, it seems like you should just be able to put stuff in the ground and then something will grow miraculously. And I've wondered about this particular parable and what it actually teaches us about planting, reaping, sowing, all of that. Um, maybe Jesus is giving us some good instruction here about planting and, uh, and about having, how to be a better or a more effective farmer, or maybe not. How have you understood the interpretation of this parable. Jesus gives some instructions here, or actually maybe he doesn't. I think there's a lot more to this parable than meets the eye, really. Every paragraph heading in every Bible I've ever seen uh, that, that talks or that lists this parable in Mark 4 talks about this as the parable of the sower. And I think probably 99% of Christians and myself for many, many years have always sort of interpreted it the same way, that, uh, that we have a lot to learn about how to get a better harvest. Webster, by the way, tells us that the definition of a parable is a short, simple story that's intended to teach uh, a moral or to, to teach or illustrate a moral or religious lesson. Now, there's a different thing called an allegory, somewhat similar, but an allegory is a work in which the characters and events are to be understood as representing other things and symbolically expressing a deeper, often spiritual, moral, or political meaning. What's the practical difference? What are we looking at here? Is this a parable or is this an allegory and does it matter? In a parable, you look for one central point. It's usually not terribly important what all the component parts are. There's one central truth that's being communicated. But with an allegory, you see lots of different levels of meaning. Here's a, here's a kind of a complex story, an allegory that you would probably recognize. Uh, the one about the man walking along the shore in the morning uh, at the beach, and he sees a little boy who's picking up starfish, and he's throwing the starfish back into the sea one by one. 
And he walks up to the little boy and he says, what are you doing? And the kid says, I'm, I'm saving these starfish. I'm throwing them in. And, uh, and the man says, that, that's ridiculous. You know, there are millions of starfish. Do you think what you're doing really makes any difference at all? And the little boy says, well, it makes a difference to this one. Now, you've heard that before. That's, in a sense, a parable. What's the, what's the message of that? It uh, basically is teaching that a little act of kindness, no matter how small, can actually make a difference, right? What if this was an allegory? If this was an allegory, we might say that the man represents the heartless federal government and the boy represents environmental activists, and then you could wax eloquent about how each uh, starfish, which represents the spotted owls whose uh, habitat is being threatened, um, you know, every one of those is valuable and uh, it's a big conspiracy. I mean, you could go on and on and on and, and allegorize this to lots of different levels of meaning. But really, it's a parable. It's simply one point that's being made here. So how do we understand this parable in Mark 4? Now, in fairness to the majority of us, it does seem like Jesus kind of interprets this as an allegory, doesn't he? Because in verses 13 through 20, he assigns meanings to component parts of this. And I think Probably the, the meaning, in a, in a sense, is not difficult for, under, for us to understand, but let's take a closer look here. First, there is no imperative in this story. What I mean by that is there is nothing that is being taught here about what we should do. There is no imperative. Doesn't it seem like there ought to be? Doesn't it seem like there ought to be a warning against sowing the, the seeds in the thorns or dropping them on the path or you know, making sure we pull all the weeds or chase the birds away. I mean, doesn't it seem like there ought to be some kind of an imperative here, something that is being suggested to us that we should actually do? And I think it's that lack of an imperative in this story that really is the key to understanding the entire parable, that it's a parable and not an allegory. Jesus is describing a reality. He's not commanding his disciples to be better farmers. He's not giving them instructions about how to get a better harvest. Parables, as Jesus tells them, are always more than just a religious truism. They're something that occur in the context of his ministry and his mission. And this parable, Jesus is describing his ministry and his mission and a reality rather than telling us how to be better farmers. And what is that reality? What is the one overarching point of this parable? Well, I think the, the, the main point, the overarching point, the obvious point is that the gospel does its own work. The gospel does its own work. This farmer is not very good at his job, is he? I mean, why would you scatter seeds on the path or in the rocks? Or why would you not chase away the birds? Obviously, if you want to get the best harvest possible, you, you would do those things. So it stands to reason that the gardener ought to first prepare the soil if he wants a good harvest, but he doesn't. I've often heard this passage preached, and honestly, I have taught it myself in the past, um, to encourage people to prepare the soil to, re to get a good harvest. Uh, we need to soften people up. You know, maybe we expose them to a lot of Christian music, Maybe leave Bible verses in little, on little cards on their desk at work. Or maybe speak a lot of Christian language to people to make them curious and, you know, comfortable with coming to church. Or, uh, I, you know, there are a lot of things that we could do. 
And I think all of those things would be good. I'm not saying that those wouldn't be good ministry practice. But I would say that what is, not, what is being taught here in this parable is not a, process, a, a plan or a process for us to soften people up to receive the gospel and to get a better harvest. We see this farmer wasting seed in places where it is not going to grow much fruit. And it really seems kind of ridiculous. And yet, despite all of that, what is the result? Despite this farmer's incredibly poor ability, what happens? There's a harvest, a huge harvest, an abundant harvest, because the gospel does its own work. Jesus, I think, made it plain that this parable is a little difficult to understand. In verse 3, he says, listen, <laughs> as if, okay, you need to tune in here. This might be tough for you to figure out what I'm going to say. In verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. We might say, Jesus is kind of saying, I hope, I hope you're getting this. I hope you're understanding this. And in fact, the disciples did miss the point because later on they ask him to interpret it for them, don't they? And his, Jesus' response is, I think, one, among one of the more difficult passages uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says this, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. <laughs> wow. What is Jesus saying here, and how does this fit with this parable? Well, first, I think we need to note that the word that in the ESV, anyway, that's, that's rendered in English, secret, really means mystery. And there is a difference between something that is kept a secret and something that is difficult for us to understand. But I think what Jesus is communicating to his disciples, and by extension, to you and me, is that God has revealed his truth to his chosen people and to those whose, God, whose hearts God has not inclined the gospel or has not inclined to respond, the gospel remains a mystery. Let me say that again. God has revealed his truth to his chosen people while to those whose hearts God has not inclined to respond, the gospel remains a mystery. Telling parables did not produce faith. Otherwise, everyone who heard them would understand them, repent, and be forgiven. They would all respond to the gospel. And we know this. We know that preaching the gospel does not always result in faith, because if it did, I would think that nearly everyone in the United States would be saved. If it's simply hearing the gospel that would always res result in people responding. It's only by faith that we recognize Jesus for who he is and respond to him in faith. John Calvin, and, and what would a sermon in a Presbyterian church be without a quote from John Calvin? John Calvin said, Jesus taught in parables for two reasons. One, to reach those whom God has chosen. And two, that the others might be judged for their lack of understanding to reach those whom God has chosen and that other, the others would be judged by their lack of understanding. It is God who ultimately gives us, inclines our hearts, moves us to respond to the gospel and to understand the things of the kingdom and of parables on a deeper level. Consider 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Paul says this, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God 
for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person without the Spirit cannot, it doesn't say will not, cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there is more going on here than simply preaching the gospel. People don't understand or do not respond to the gospel, not because of a lack of hearing it, it's because of the condition of their hearts. And apart from God doing a work in our hearts, we're going to be unwilling to respond to and embrace the gospel. Now, does that mean we should let them off the hook and, uh, and then blame God for their lack of sensitivity to the gospel? That would be kind of the obvious extension of that logic. But no, people ob- absolutely have free will. They can do whatever they choose to do. The problem is that they only choose to be at enmity with God. This is what John Calvin says again. This is a little, little bit old English, but I'll, I'll come back and translate this a bit in a second. He said, all who have been given over to a reprobate mind do so voluntarily, and from inward malice they blind themselves, nor can it be otherwise wherever the Spirit of God does not reign by whom the elect alone are governed. Therefore, let us attend to this connection that all whom God does not enlighten with the spirit of adoption are men of unsound mind, and that while they are more and more blinded by the word of God, the blame rests wholly on themselves. Because this blindness is voluntary. Again, the ministers of the word ought to seek consolation from this passage. If the success of their labors does not always correspond to their wish. Many are so far from profiting from their instruction that they are rendered worse by it. And what has befallen them was experienced by a prophet, that is Jesus, to whom they are not superior. Now, that's that's a mouthful of Old English. But basically what Calvin is saying is this. When we share our faith, it does not always result in people responding positively to the gospel. You've noticed this, right? When we share our faith, it does not always result in people responding positively. And Calvin is basically saying that happened to Jesus also. <laughs> that When Jesus preached, not everyone believed. Not everyone responded. It's the same for us as it was for Jesus. Jesus experienced this whole th- the same thing, and I think it helps us to make sense of that quotation from Isaiah when Jesus quotes Isaiah saying, they, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing never, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Parables are a kind of judgment. They don't keep people f- from seeing the truth so much as they indicate who does see it. They're kind of a teaching, really like all of God's Word, that separates the believer from the unbeliever. Now, Jesus does go ahead and kind of interpret the parable in verses 13 through 20 when he begins to talk about what is happening to the different kinds of, or the seeds that fall on different kinds of soil. But remember his insistence that this is kind of a difficult parable to understand. He says, listen, and if you have ears to hear, hear. Finally, at the end, he says, don't you understand this parable? This is a tough teaching. But ultimately, we need to remember the central meaning here. God's kingdom is in God's hands, and the gospel will do its own work. Now, the ministry that that Mary and I have been called to for the last 12 years, 
um, is an evangelistic effort in North Asia. And uh, I've been over and back more than 40 times since 2011 and twice this year, which is, praise the Lord, things are beginning to open up a little bit. And I just got back from six weeks there, five of which I was uh, teaching at a university and had a phenomenal time. Um, we have a number of different facets of that ministry with national staff and uh, also some efforts here in the Triangle to reach students from that country uh, at Duke University and UNC. And then also we have historically sent Americans over to work on college campuses to teach English where they have the opportunity to do a one-on-one -on -one ministry. And uh, it's, it has been amazing. It really has been amazing. I've had the opportunity to sit with kids who have never seen a Bible, or if they've ever heard the name Jesus, they kind of put him in the category of Greek mythology, like Thor or someone, you know, that they're not even sure that was a historical character. And I've had the opportunity to sit and talk with kids and watch them respond to the gospel and see miracles. We, we don't do a lot of the miracle thing in the PCA, but, but it's, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit does amazing things. And uh, I think what the Lord has taught me loud and clear during those 42 trips is that God's kingdom is in his own hands and the gospel does its own work. We make kind of a public proclamation sometimes. We call it English night. It looks like a Young Life club in somebody's basement here in America. But we really can't talk about Jesus uh, in a specific way. So what do we do? We talk about love and faithfulness and integrity and hope and fear and life issues, different things that are, in a sense, a parable. We talk about life issues that kids would be interested in that will lead to deeper discussions. And remarkably, some kids will come up to us after virtually every one of those talks and ask us questions about deeper things, and invariably, those discussions lead to a conversation about Jesus. Some of those conversations lead to nothing. <laughs> they, they, they just go far afield. And, but then there are some kids where you're like, oh my gosh, this, this kid is really interested in what we're talking about. What's the difference? Was it the quality of the message? No. <laughs> it's having a sense of that the Lord is working in this person's heart. And you can feel it. You can see it happening with kids. I, I wish I had the time to tell you endless stories of of kids who just out of, out of nowhere, randomly, just sort of responded to the gospel in ways that were absolutely miraculous. As you drive through the countryside in that country, you regularly see crops that are planted in very strange places. There are little flat spots on hillsides, and uh, I was recently, on this last trip, we drove way up into the mountains, about 9,000 feet, and um, there are terraces on these hillsides. Some of them are barely a yard wide, these little terraces, and they're planting corn or planting something because there's really no level ground anywhere for them to plant uh, vegetables. And they understand that, like the people who Jesus is talking to in the first century, they understand that they have no John Deere tractor. They probably don't even have an a ox or a, a mule or something to plow the ground. Basically, they can go out and plant seeds wherever they can and hope that some of them will grow because that's what they can do. That's what farmers can do. They can plant the seeds. And then sometimes they get a result. Other times they don't. But our teams 
in that country do what farmers do. They do what Christians do. We scatter seed to the best of our ability. And we see that some of it hits rocky paths and some of it gets choked out by thorns. Sometimes nothing happens, or it appears to us at that moment anyway that nothing is happening. But sometimes, always really, there is a harvest. There is fruit when the gospel is sown. And it really has very little to do with how good we are at evangelism and a lot more to do, really ultimately everything to do, with God's activity, with the activity of the Holy Spirit. I was walking around a, a cultural site with a little girl named Mary, and she had, university student, and she had had a relationship, friendship, with three of our teachers who had gone over to teach. And uh, so for three years, she's now a senior, she had known these, uh, these believers. They had loved her well. And I just happened to be paired up with her that day when we were taking a short-term trip and doing a cultural site. And one of the things we saw was kind of a religious uh, artifact. And I asked her a question. I said, Mary, do, do people really believe in this? Like, do, does this make a difference? Do you think, like, somehow putting fruit in front of this thing really makes a difference? <laughs> Here was her response. She said, you know, when I talk to people who know God, I see a difference in their heart. That was not the question I asked. But immediately I thought, oh my gosh, the Lord is, this was not an intellectual comment. This was something coming from her heart. The Lord is doing something here. And so immediately I began to ask her, well, what, what do you know about Jesus? Well, no, not much. Would you like to know? Yes, I'd like, we sat on a bench and, and I shared the gospel with her for about 30 minutes about 20 minutes of which people were looking for us because we were supposed to leave and nobody could find us, which was remarkable because we really weren't at a place that was that hidden. But somehow the Lord gave me extra time to spend with this little girl. And by the end of it, she said she would like to receive the gift of eternal life. She'd like to pray to have Jesus in her heart. And I'll never forget saying to her, okay, we're going we're gonna to talk to God. It's going to be just like having a conversation. Um, I'll it's almost like a phone call. I'll dial, you know, and then you can talk, and then I'll hang up, you know. And, and uh, so I prayed a little bit. I turned to her, and she's riveted watching me. And uh, when it was her turn, she said, hello, God. My name is Mary. <laughs> Adorable. And uh, prayed to receive the Lord. Did that have to do with what a great evangelist I was? No. Other people had invested in this girl's life for three years. I happened to be there at the moment. I really believe that you could almost stand in front of people and say fish for sale and get a response to the gospel. Well, we won't do that, but, but because it's the Holy Spirit, it's the activity of God in someone's heart that moves them to respond. And it wasn't anything about how good I was that day. It was just, I took the moment. I saw it as a divine appointment. I said, would you like to know more? And she said, yes. Amazing. So where does this leave you and me? Are we off the hook? Like, because this is God's thing, can we just say, okay, we'll just step back and let you do your thing. We don't need to talk to anybody about Jesus. I've just told you that Jesus is not in this parable instructing us to work the soil or till it or pull weeds. Farmers do what farmers do. And I think Jesus' assumption in this parable is that Christians do what Christians do. They share the gospel. Have you heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary? I think that was attributed to St. Francis. 
and I think St. Francis was a moron. No, excuse me, that was, can we take that off the tape? Um, <laughs> I, I think, let's put it this way, I think, I think the Apostle Paul would not consider St. Francis good company, because here's what the Apostle Paul says about that. In Romans 8, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. By the way, he didn't say you can choose to be or we'll go to a seminar. He said, no, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. D. James Kennedy said many years ago, if you're not fishing for people, what does that suggest about how you're following Jesus? Because Jesus said, if you follow me, I will make you. It's a command with a promise attached. He will make us to be fishers of men. Friends, God could reach people in a lot of ways. He could skywrite. He could come on TV. Um, he could speak from heaven. But in his wisdom, he does not do that. He has not done that. The primary way that people come to Jesus is when Christians do what we've been privileged to do, and that is share our faith with other people. Share our faith with other people. So what's the application here? I, I think sometimes it's presumptuous for a preacher to give you the application of a sermon. That's between you and the Lord. But let me suggest at least a couple of principles here. First, the Word is sown far and wide, and it might look like a waste to us, but it's all in God's hands. There's nothing wasted. God will use anything and everything that you and I do in sharing the gospel. He will, because the gospel is in God's hands. You remember that guy, if you're old enough, in Monday Night Football, there used to be a guy back in the 70s, probably, that wore a rainbow wig, and he had a John 3.16 sign, and he was in the end zone, and for some reason, the network would show him at every game, every Monday night, and he'd be waving this wig back and forth, this weird thing, holding up this John 3.16 sign. And I used to think, what a, what a, I mean, the guy's crazy. Like, I mean, that's, that can't possibly help anyone. But you know what? God probably could, there, you're probably going to get to heaven, and there's going to be somebody going to say, you remember that guy with the John 3, you know? Who knows? Who knows what God will use? All I know is it gives me encouragement that my worst, my clumsiest efforts are not for nothing. I can't blow it because it's in God's hands. And a second application would be this, similar to the first. The servant of the gospel is never in control of how people respond to the gospel, but people's response is never about how well you shared it. So go share. Go share the gospel. God will accomplish a work through your proclamation. And that ought to be a serious encouragement to you and me. Friday night, this past Friday, uh, I, or no, a week ago Friday, I uh, had the opportunity to teach a little evangelism seminar to my son-in-law's volunteer leaders, young life leaders, mostly college, a few of them are a little older. And um, we... We talked about how you do this, what, what are some tools, what are some ways, why don't we? I asked them the question, I got a whiteboard, and I said, why don't people share the gospel? Give me some reasons. And they listed, I wish we could do that here, I listed about a dozen reasons, and you know what they were. Um, I'm afraid, um, too confrontational, I might offend somebody, the timing isn't right, 
Um, I might say the wrong thing. What if they asked me about dinosaurs? Um, you know, I mean, it was kind of, <laughs> there, were, there were, you know, 10 or 15 reasons. And then I said this. I said, okay, how many of these things that we wrote here are absolutely going to happen, this worst case stuff, how many of these are absolutely going to happen if you share the gospel? 100% sure. They were like, uh, zero. I said, okay, so you're telling me that all of these things that you said are the reason why we're not sharing the gospel probably aren't going to happen. They're just a possibility. And they said, yeah. I said, okay, how many of these are about you and me and not about the other person? And they were like, uh, all of them. <laughs> I said, so you're telling me the reason why we don't share the gospel one-on-one -on -one with people who we know and love is because we're a little afraid of some things that probably won't happen and basically I don't want to. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. Um, yeah, every sermon that I've heard since I've been back from China that Corey has preached has been about the necessity of sharing the gospel with other people. And I think it's something that's it's convicting to me because I'm not taking advantage of every opportunity I have. God will use <clears throat> anything and everything that we say and do. The success never depends on us. God has made it clear that telling people about Jesus, us, we, telling people about Jesus is the primary means how people respond to the gospel and meet Jesus. And he has made it clear that there will be a harvest. So why aren't we doing this? Why am I not doing this? If you're sitting here this morning and you're a little confused because you're thinking, I don't know that I've ever said I wanted to follow Jesus, um, that's fine. I would encourage you to think about the fact that perhaps it wasn't your idea to come here this morning. <laughs> Maybe the fact that you're sitting here is because Jesus actually moved you in some way to come and to hear this message. Maybe that's a little spark that you ought to at least take a look at, fan into flame, and just see where that leads. Because again, it's God's activity in your heart, not how good the message is this morning that would lead you potentially to a relationship with Jesus. So follow that spark wherever it might lead. Maybe this would be the day when you'd stop kind of fighting against that and, and invite him in because he's doing a work in your heart. My friends, God's kingdom is in God's hand and the gospel does its own work. That ought to be a great encouragement, a great motivation for you and me to share our faith with all of those whom God has put in our path, in our path and all of those whom God has given us this great privilege of representing him to. Will you pray with me? Father, it's, uh, it's humbling to think that this is your work first to last, and it's arrogant for us to think that somehow we can mess it up. Father, I pray that you would put a, a real desire in my heart, in the hearts of my friends here, that uh, we would at least take advantage of the opportunities we've been given, that we would trust you for the results, that there would be a great harvest because you've promised that there will be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.